Hello and welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where we break down the news and health tech for the week, every single week. Today, I am personally delighted to be joined by Dr. Grace Hatton. Uh, This has been a long time coming, so I'm glad we have finally got her on board to join us for a week. Grace is... Principal Clinician at Acturis Data and holds fellowships with the RSA and Forbes Ignite, as well as sitting on the RSM Digital Health Council. And I got to meet Grace when I actually joined her probably about a year ago now on the podcast that she hosts, Founders Keepers. So welcome, Grace. Lovely to have you. Thank you so much, Jess. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. How are you doing? How's your week been? It's been good. I'm, I'm trying to think of interesting things to, to share with you, but nothing's really springing to mind, but nothing, nothing awful either. So. It's been a short week. It has, it has. That's, that's probably why I can't think of anything in particular. Hugh and Jess, how have your weeks been? Yeah, I mean, I've spent the week perpetually confused as to what debt is, probably like everybody else. So is today Friday? Is today Thursday? Can't be sure. Yeah, five days worth of meetings in four days. Who doesn't love a short week? Let's get into the stories. This week's first story comes to us from Digital Health with the headline, Shares in Babylon Fall Sharply on News of Moves to Take Private. So this feels like a story that kind of keeps on giving. And I know that um, when Liam Cahill joined us a few weeks ago, we actually touched on the earlier stages of this story then, which was reported by The Telegraph, who ultimately was talking about there might be a bit of a cash crunch headed Babylon's way. Um, But this story basically says that shares stood at just under $7 on Tuesday, but by Wednesday lunchtime had fallen to $2. And that was off the back of announcement from Babylon that they had a new funding agreement in place with Albacore Capital, who are their lead investor, to provide $34.5 million of interim funding to support ongoing operations. This is apparently part of a longer term plan to restructure debt and return to private ownership. And obviously, we know that Babylon is one of the few digital health companies to have IPO'd and they publicly listed in 2021 via SPAC. And at that time, their their shares were valued at $273 million. Um, But these latest valuations now stand at less than 1% of that. And I've already seen that this story has caused quite a stir on LinkedIn. And Ari Gottlieb basically just calls the financing a slightly better than payday lender terms, which really just paves the way for Albacore Capital to ultimately take on the company, which we know is the plan. And when 18 months ago, after the SPAC deal, you know, since then, they've lost 300 million from operations and also lost close to $4 billion in market value. I feel like there's a lot to unpick here. I'm, I'm sort of unsurprised that this has happened because I feel like I've been watching it sort of happen from afar. But I'm, I'm still surprised that it's happened because I can't believe Babylon have effectively blown it. Um, it I actually found this out because my dad sent me that Telegraph article. Um, I was having a chat with him about this last night because we were just sort of, how on earth did they not sort of see the warning signs that you know, were essentially paved the way for by Sensline Health, which is a company that I used to work for. And it's almost an exact parallel of what happened with Sensline Health. Also, hi, Dad, because he'll be listening to this. Um, I think it's really interesting because you're essentially following a similar pattern of these AI-powered healthcare companies that launched with similar ideas in a similar period of time in the UK and on paper had very promising opportunities with the NHS. But as I've said, this is an incredible parallel to what happened with Sensei Health. You know, there are many crossovers between the two companies that I thought would have flagged concerns at Babylon HQ long before this actually happened, but somehow it didn't or they were ignored. And I'd be interested to know what, what you, you all think about sort of AI-powered healthcare business models, because I think the trouble in the longer term and in the short term is how do you effectively monetize? And I think this is the trouble that Babylon have run into. Um, It sort of seems that there was insufficient funding for their business model. And 
that also ties in with, was there too much talk? Were there promises that didn't materialize? Is it the fact that they were spending far too much cash on products or services that actually didn't have a significant ROI? Um, and it looks like they're now just on the retreat in what I hope is, well, what I suspect is their hope that privatization will in fact save them. I think it, it, it ties in really nicely to what Liam talked about, actually, when he was on the podcast and we were covering that that Telegraph story. And what he said was that the rise of Babylon has been pretty meteoric and no one could have really predicted the success that they had and the speed of that success. And ultimately, you know, it was a combination of things and, you know, timing was on their side. And, he, you know, attributes some of what we're seeing now to a huge amount of bad luck. But exactly as you said, you know, it's a really challenging financial model. And the fact that, you know, it's just unsurprising that, for example, the GP at hand model hasn't been able to turn a profit. We know that they've really struggled particularly with that in the UK. And, you know, in this article, Ali Pasha is quoted as saying that every time they bring on a new person, they lose money or they bring on a new person into the business, they lose money. And when I was at London Tech Week last week, he was one of the keynote speakers. And, you know, he talked to the fact that Amazon didn't turn a profit for 12 years. And so why should our focus exclusively be on that profitability? Because actually it's a longer journey to get there. But, you know, I absolutely take your point that actually, you know, is there a is there a financial model that that does stand up in this space? And again, one of the things that Liam talked about before, and we, you know, we've obviously heard about is that Cree Livy was struggling previously. We've seen them ha- go through difficult times, but they have more recently reported, you know, turning a profit, which is, you know, amazing news right across, you know, the sector, I think, as everyone is looking towards profitability in these really difficult economic times. And we know, obviously, that investors are increasingly looking for profitability more so than they ever have been. So it shows that it is possible. But I think I do wonder whether where you have these kind of behemoths, whether you almost get too far down a certain road where actually the the seismic pivot that perhaps is needed is just so far beyond them that it, it no longer becomes realistic. Um, and it does strike me that, you know, privatization appears to be sort of a last ditch attempt to save them. But the article even talks about, you know, bankruptcy in the UK. Um, and effectively, that is the kind of the path that they're, they're headed down, which is, I think, frightening for for the sector as a whole. Um, and I think, you know, it's disappointing. I think a lot of people look to Babylon as, you know, a star of the show, a real pioneer and kind of paving the way for lots of these digital health companies. And, you know, off the back of, you know, the the news of the folding of, you know, pair therapeutics. I think it it strikes fear into a lot of people, which I don't think is a good thing at a time where there's so much economic uncertainty and, you know, people are going to be less willing to perhaps invest in these kinds of companies or even commission these kinds of services, I think, because of the uncertainty that, you know, will they be here in 12 months time, if nothing else? So, yeah, it's a tough one. Jess, Hugh, have you got any thoughts? I guess the question for me is what what the future of a privately held Babylon looks like. I mean, if we can draw parallels or if we know anything about what Albacore's uh, appetite or patience for um, keeping Babylon going on its path to profitability is, then I, I, it would be interesting to know, you know, is this, a, is this a genuine take it private and try and build it up or is it a sell it for parts and you know, move it, move things along. I think, you know, we've seen cases where companies are taken private and, or someone acquires what's, you know, something in trouble and then pushes it just to take the the things that work and cut everything that else that doesn't. So I, I mean, I think it'd be an interesting one to watch for the sort of next year, next two years to see what they actually choose to do and how successful they can take it on that road to profitability. Yeah, I think also interesting to see how their competitors react to this. Like, is this going to be a chance for them to step up and grab some of that oxygen? Um, Because that could be a potentially positive outcome of all of this is that other companies who are maybe smothered by the dominance of Babylon now have their time to do something differently and um, maybe succeed where Babylon haven't. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point that, you know, that perhaps there is some opportunity for some of the other players um, who perhaps haven't had the coverage, shall we say, that that Babylon have had. I guess 
along with AI, chat GPT, women's health and health inequity, I feel like we can safely say that this, we can add this to the long list of topics that certainly on health tech pigeon, and I think more broadly as an industry, we just can't stop talking about. And I don't think we will be changing that for quite some time as we continue to watch this scenario play out. But I think, you know, as we've said previously, it it must also be incredibly tough for the people who are working at Babylon Health and, you know, really uncertain times for them. And I think that's incredibly unsettling. Um, And, you know, I think we have to really have some kind of empathy for what that that must feel like as they go through this transition. Um, Because I think it's one thing, you know, hearing what we hear on the outside externally, but um, often, you know, is a very different story to what's actually happening inside of a company. So hopefully this will lead Babylon to greener pastures, greener private pastures and an optimistic future. But we will wait with bated breath and see. So our second story comes to us from Pulse which says the innovative practice, in quotation marks, should not be the basis of a recovery plan. Uh, So the editor of Pulse, Jamie Kafash, is talking here about the GP recovery plan, or as the NHS calls it, the delivery plan for recovering access to primary care. So, Hugh, what do you make of this one? Uh, so I think this is a really interesting story. Uh, obviously, GPs, uh, the primary care recovery plan was announced by government this week, and it puts a lot of the focus um, on where the opportunities are in digital health to bring that, that access efficiency piece into primary care and make things sort of work a bit better looking at health tech. And I think this article rightly points that out possibly quite aggressively that innovation and health tech isn't necessarily the solution to problems that have been plaguing primary care for quite a few years now. Um, or at least it's it's not the only solution. It's not the only challenge that's out there. And that uh, you know the basis of this problem is is a workforce issue, is a um, a capacity issue and an issue that successive policies have not necessarily done what they could to address. And I think possibly I'm being a little polite here in putting the onus, uh, putting the responsibility, if you will, on practices to find health tech solutions to, you know, national or even global issues is, isn't quite the right way to look at this as, you know, as a solution. And, um, you know, others do jump in on this because, uh, you know, if anyone wants to be more brutal on this, um, it's it's welcome, but you know there are some great companies that are helping to answer this problem, and one of the ones that's mentioned in the um, in the primary care recovery plan in a case study is is Clinic that uses a AI triage solution to help GP practices address their capacity issues and, and make sure that you know people who need um, treatment by a GP are seen quickly, and people who can be seen by one of the alternative roles within primary care are also seen and you know it's it's doing a great job in helping a number of practices and a number of um, networks address their problems um, that they're facing but it's not going to be the absolute final solution to these issues so um, I guess Grace, Jess, uh, any, any thoughts on this one? Um, yeah I think it's interesting the point he makes um, that we shouldn't take one case study um, or pilot scheme um, and see that that's successful and then just assume that the success um, is going to be replicable across different practices in different parts of the country. Um, and he says that's because um, practice solutions are often geared towards their own pa- patient populations. They don't tend to be one size fits all. That in pilots and that commissioners desperately want them to succeed, therefore they get more attention and people put more effort towards making them successful and that can't necessarily be replicated on a larger scale. Um, and also the fact that implementing change takes headspace, takes effort, takes time. Um, and that's something which is very much in short, um, in short supply, um, in most GP practices. 
yeah, I just think that was um, something that made me think. Because I think a lot of the time we do look at successful case studies and that gets everyone really excited and they think, wow, this is something which really could um, change the game. But actually, it's just something which has changed the game in one example and can't necessarily be replicated on that national scale. Yeah, I think it's a really tough one um, because it is a health system in crisis. We know a huge part of that is lack of resource, lack of people. And so I can see why they have lent so heavily on that innovation piece to kind of plug that gap. But I guess what it also needs is the context for, I guess it's something we also talk about um, more broadly is, you know, technology is always only ever part of a solution. And that whenever we integrate a technology into a system or service or a patient journey or clinical workflow there is also that also creates a burden too in terms of you know, training staff for instance and the actual installation and integration into existing systems and creating you know interoper- interoperability where appropriate with with systems and processes that you already have and so i think that can't be understated and i think you're absolutely right jess that I think we'll come on to talk about this probably in our next story a bit more. But ultimately, you know, it's we do have to err on the side of caution where we stop extrapolating success in pilots to success at scale. And I think, you know, obviously it's really hard to scale in the NHS and therefore get some of that, you know, I guess, you know, those proof points to show that, you know, you, you can use something at scale and it is it can be used in different contexts, in different scenarios and services with equal success. So, yeah, I think I think it's a challenging one and I can understand where the, I think it's largely fair challenge, um, but I can also understand where it's, where it's come from. Grace, as a clinician, do you have a view on this one? I do. Um, and... I, I feel like the most pertinent points have already been made by you already, but I think I think it's a really interesting article, as Hugh has mentioned, and it's one that I welcome because I think it's always far more sexy to write about a new innovative rollout that's going to revolutionise healthcare, whether that be primary, secondary or otherwise. And the presumption is always that it will absolutely address everyone's concerns in every sector, but it's not. And the article mentions that, you know, these solutions are not one size fits all. Um you know, some patients may benefit more than others, certain demographics or geographic locations may benefit more than others. You know, you can't compare a GP practice in a central urban location with one in, say, you know, rural highlands, and that the patient needs will be the same and that everyone is au fait with certain technology that will enable these innovative solutions to be rolled out effectively. And that actually as well, there are often just not the resources to do these things effectively or quickly or at scale. But as I mentioned, that's that's not a sexy thing to write about. That you know, here's a really innovative practice that we're going to pour a lot of money into, but it's only going to work in a certain number of cases, and it's not going to be um, a complete solution. is is not really what I think people want to hear, whether they're users or service providers. Um, and again, whenever I think I think in particularly in healthcare, and particularly in the UK, I think whenever we hear about structural changes being implemented, it's often with the backbone of we're going to use technology and that will make everything better. Um, and I, I, in my jaded uh, clinical view, I do see it as more of a bandaid over a very large wound rather than a cure, um, curative solution. So I, I you know, obviously the, the, the article doesn't have have that fixed solution other than to say you know, we do need major structural change utilising things other than tech. And, you know, that's the only real way out of this crisis. Um, but uh, I particularly like the line that it's, you know, number 140 in the queue when it comes to the government's uh, priorities, because that's probably, probably true. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's, I don't think there's a straightforward solution. And that's what I, I think the point is trying to be made here. I think it is absolutely right that like ultimately it is going to take that transformation at that level and that it is low down on a government's list of priorities especially 
where we are in the political cycle, and I think we, you know, we frequently talk about this, that level of system-wide national transformation is just not in the interests of a government that is staring down the barrel of a general election that ultimately, you know, this kind of transformation that will be costly, will be disruptive, and we won't be reaping the benefits for for potentially years to come. Um, so, I, yeah, it's that just is not going to happen in, in certainly the near future. And perhaps we'll get lucky, and I think it will be lucky, um, you know, with a new government that comes in if there is a new government. Um, but ultimately, I guess, or moreover, there will be a, a government with a much longer runway to, to make these more significant changes. But that said, I also feel like we've been talking about NHS transformation for the longest time. And it's not happened in any government for decades. So, well, since the NHS was first created. So I, I also won't hold my breath that it actually happens at that point. But yes, I think a sticking plaster to a much bigger problem probably is a good analysis. The third story for today comes from Forbes with an interesting headline that says, coming to terms with the healthcare industry's inauthentic epidemic. Now, when I read that headline, I thought I was in for one kind of story. And the story it gave me was actually something quite different. And for those who have read this article, there is a very large image right at the top of one of Grace and I's favourite characters uh, in health tech, Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, we end up talking about her quite a lot whenever we go for dinner. And the the title of the picture says Elizabeth Holmes, the poster child of uh, healthcare in authenticity. Uh, and so immediately I got excited about this one. But as I read it, it's actually telling a different story about something slightly different. And I don't know, the rest of you may disagree with me here, but this is written by a contributor, Sachin Jane who is CEO and president of Scan Group and Health Plan. He's a contributor for Forbes. He's also a doctor. Um, and what he's talking about here is exactly as we you mentioned earlier, Jess, he starts off by talking about pilots and ultimately our inauthentic approach to digital health in general and extrapolating small-scale data for big-scale success and ultimately an industry that is over-promising and under-delivering. And one of the things he said was that ultimately there are lots of pilots out there in healthcare, but they are pilots that fail to scale and then disappear into oblivion, which I thought was very poetic, um, if nothing else, um, but also was a nod to something that uh, Francesca Watuka, founder of NEN, said on stage recently at Health Excel conference, which was that we are a industry obsessed with pilotitis and running lots and lots of these small studies that ultimately give us data that is not likely to be extrapolated into larger scale success. Basically, the article goes on to talk about persistent window dressing of a broken system, which we've just talked about, and that so many people in the space are guilty of overstating the impact and potential and yet profoundly under-delivering, which is leading us to normalise inauthenticity in healthcare. Now, as I said, this is a really different story to the poster child of um, healthcare inauthenticity, where obviously we have people who have nefarious motives, shall we say. And I think that is a different story altogether. So I'm interested to... Get your take on this one, Grace, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Elizabeth Holmes has a lot to answer for. Um, but I agree with you, Jess. I thought I was in for essentially another um, profile of Elizabeth Holmes as the harbinger of um, sort of healthcare business failure and inauthenticity. Um, but actually, I, I lapped up this article. I felt it truly spoke to me. I felt quite vindicated reading it. Um, particularly the line, um, in a field ostensibly dominated by scientific discovery and rigour, many results fail to meet the basic standards of a sixth grade science teacher's lecture on the scientific method. Like, it's just great writing. Um, and I agree with 
pretty much all of the content. You know, when you think about, and we've we've spoken already about Babylon Health here, and I think that sort of speaks to speaks to inauthenticity and the sort of failure to deliver on promised products and services. Um, I work in the field, and I've seen the perspective both as a clinician and someone who works in health tech and uh, real world data, and I just haven't seen a lot of promised results and a lot of things that I have witnessed over the years seem to have disappeared into the ether. And I wonder, and I'd be keen to get everyone else's thoughts here, I feel that there is this approach, and I've, I've said this to others, and I've spoken about this on um, my podcast as well, is that there is, seems to be this Silicon Valley bro approach to healthcare, where you get players that come in and seem to think that the best way to approach problems that we have inherent in healthcare models is to operate in, to, to paraphrase Zuckerberg, a way that you move fast and break things. And you just can't do that in healthcare. You, you need to be very deliberate. You need to be very precise, slow. You need to be very careful because, frankly, people die if you don't. You know, that's the bottom line. Um, and this strange startup advocacy line of building these products, rolling them out as quickly as possible, again, thinking of Babylon here, you know, and they've been badgered by, you know, doctors raising concerns since 2017, you know, misinformation, their chatbot providing misinformation, missing diagnoses, you know, the approach just doesn't work. um, And it's not sustainable. And I think that's sort of what I picked up on in this article in particular. Um, And I wonder, do do we think, do we think as well, because Sachin addresses the problems with people being essentially gone after if you're not paying your bills, but um, I think it was a quote, you know, we are nothing if not passionate about our mission to serve the poor, but again, only if you pay up your insurance. Do we think this is more of a problem in countries where you've got an insurance-based healthcare program, say, rather than the NHS, or do you think it's sort of more of a an, an epidemic or a pandemic? I would like to play devil's advocate here, and to that point, actually, because I think perhaps he is maybe talking more about an insurance-led system. But to, to I guess, as I said, you know, he's a doctor and also a health technologist. He works in a health technology company. Um, but he's clearly speaking from his, his own experience and the experience of his colleagues and peers as well. And I think, you know, we, we heard in the last couple of weeks from numerous doctors talking about the fact that you know, products should be developed and solutions should be developed in partnership with clinicians to make sure that they are fit for purpose, they work and they are going to fit into a workflow. But my view is, and there are a few exceptions to the rule, Elizabeth Holmes and others um, will be included in those exceptions. But by and large, and certainly from the UK, no one goes into healthcare to get rich. I, I, I really don't think that that is the case. I think that people spot opportunities, but I also think that people know that, you know, clearly there are some, like there is a commercial aspect to it. There has to be, you have to be able to make money, otherwise your product isn't going to survive. But I think by and large, you know, and I can speak from the context of, for example, the events that we run um, at Google's offices, bringing together that health tech community, the energy and the motivation in that room is palpable for people who want to just make positive change. And I actually think that certainly from the UK's perspective, we know that by and large, the NHS is not on its own, is not a solid commercial strategy for a health tech solution. And we know that we understand that health tech solutions struggle to scale into systems like that because you need data and there are real challenges with procurement. And I often think that that's why we see businesses disappear into the ether, because actually there are so many barriers to scale that where you are reliant on the NHS as your commercial business model, it, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the venture capital that you have starts running out because procurement is slowing up or, you know, the decision makers, the, the people in the team have changed, for example, and you're, you're back to square one. And I think it's a fair analysis, but I, I would say that it's not entirely balanced with an innovator's perspective. But I also acknowledge that largely this is coming probably from, from a US standpoint. And so I can understand why there is a culture of pilotitis. Because there is also this idea that by engaging services in pilots is a strategy to then upselling them to the paid model. 
off the back of a successful pilot. And, you know, I think it's a really tough landscape at the moment. And I think a lot of health tech companies are struggling. And I think ultimately that's why we're seeing a lot of people disappear. And I think, you know, that's in stark contrast to, you know, the boom that we had 18 months ago where there was a lot of money in the space. Everyone was getting funded and, and funded very well. So I can sympathize with with this perspective as well. But I think that there is there is more to it than simply people just wanting to get rich quick. Yeah, I kind of want to come in on a bit of a defense of um, healthcare and health tech comms and PR, um, because I understand why Sachin's made the points that he has. And obviously he wants to make a bit of a punchy statement um, and start a debate. And I think that's why he's gone super hard on this like crisis of inauthenticity angle. Um, but I mean, I've been working in health tech, comms and PR for years now, and this doesn't really chime with my experiences at all. Um, I've worked with dozens of different companies and um, NHS organizations and pretty much every project I've worked on, there's been concerted effort from everybody involved not to overhype and not to overstate and not to um, cause anyone to become jaded or cynical um, about overpromise. And lots of times when I've tried to jazz up angles, um, the providers themselves, the people who have commercial interest in wanting to overhype or overstate, um, have said, no, like we don't want to overpromise anything. Even if they've got the evidence to back it up, a lot of the time people are extremely wary of um, overselling. They, they only want to be like completely realistic. They only want to make statements that can be backed up by evidence and facts. And so, um, yeah, I can't really say that I agree with the fact that there's a, like an epidemic of whitewashing um, or fakery whatsoever. But obviously, I'm slightly biased um, <laughs> pro the PR and comms people working super hard to um, just talk about, yeah, just to like be authentic and um, honest in their communications. Maybe what Sachin's talking about is just a few examples of people who have not nailed their communication strategy and have then had to rely on these like overinflated claims where actually good PR and comms is about telling a story that gets people interested and excited without having to rely on lie or hype. So I'm going to jump in here because I, I totally agree with everything Jess said. Um, but I'm also going to provide a slightly conflicting thing, which is I think I... I think health tech was particularly guilty of some of the things that Sachin has identified here. As Jessica, you mentioned the last 18 months, you know, within the last 18 months, I think. But I don't know if it's necessarily health tech that's at fault or the industry or the environment in which health tech is, is working. The, the, the other people involved in this process, the other people involved in this industry. And again, this isn't everyone. There are, uh, I think, as Jess identified, the the NHS teams who are very keen that we do not overegg, that we do not push anything, um, that we do not make claims that we cannot uh, make. On the flip side, there are, and again, this isn't everyone within these sectors. There are those, there are the accelerators that have taken equity in companies that want to prove a result, that want to make these big pilots happen, that make these things um, scale so that they can show their impact and point to examples. There are. The government that wants to point to technology as an easy fix um, on at the at the high level, while looking at you know where we can make uh, you know looking at these pilots where that do eventually fade. Yeah, reading this article, I think a lot actually did chime. Things like pilots that failed to scale and disappear into oblivion. The big announcements that were made about the technologies that were being used or that could help solve big pandemic problems, and which in the end. Yeah, none of them were adopted um, off the back of pilots. These big challenges that everyone felt that tech was going to solve, and I think occasionally we do see companies making big claims. I, I'm not talking about the Elizabeth Holmes level. Um, I think the, there's definitely a difference between flat out lying and inauthenticity. But I think there is a there is a a role for all of us, I think, from the PR and comms side in challenging some of that and saying, you know, we're not going to make these claims without proof points. We're not going to make these claims without making them, you know, dem actual demonstrative evidence that this is something you can achieve. We're not going to talk about this without showing that you can scale or showing that there's the opportunity for you to do that. And, you know, I think it's a bit, it comes back to the Babylon thing, which is almost a tragedy of the kind of 
the slightly journalistic and reporting side of this, which is we've followed, we've all followed Babylon from you know its big peak to its sad decline over the last you know year or so. We probably haven't seen, and it's due to the capacity of journalism. You know, it's uh, journalists are stretched, publications are stretched. They can't report on what happened to some of these big announcements. You know, when when government makes a big announcement or an accelerator makes a big announcement about you know a fantastic pilot. Sometimes we never hear the end of that um, you, that story from, and it's sad that we don't hear the end because we'd be able to call out some of these um, these problems, these challenges with inauthenticity earlier if we could say we know what happened in this story the last time. Come back to us with the results, and I think journalists, you know, every day for us, they do play a, a great role in checking that before ever before these announcements ever hit. Um, the story with the okay tell us the impact what's actually coming out of this and i think as long as we keep asking that question not just at like pitching a uh, pitching an announcement to journalists but whenever we talk to people working in health tech nhs startups companies um, doing their thing as long as we keep asking that question what is the impact at every stage then we can probably overcome some of these challenges yeah I think so. And I think, you know, as we were talking, I also reflected on what he was saying and what you've all said there about overclaims as well. And it's worth noting, and we all know that there are huge differences, obviously, in the UK and the US healthcare system, um, huge differences, but there are also huge differences from a regulatory perspective. And in the UK, it is much, much, much harder to overclaim. Um, And there are much more severe consequences to overclaiming. Um, whereas in the US, it's not quite the same and it's obviously not health technology, but I can remember um, working with one particular client around a medicine and the strap line was the miracle pill. You would never, ever be able to say that over here. And so I think it, there's also a cultural thing, um, you know, and we see this as evident not just in healthcare, we see it just between the UK and US cultures. The UK is inherently more conservative than the US. Um, and often, you know, you know, people couldn't talk a good game. Um, whereas I think in the UK, we are far more used to and more comfortable with playing things down. And I think that is reflected in probably your experience there, Jess. But equally, I think, you know, what you're saying, Hugh, as well, it is absolutely right, especially off the back of the boom of health tech that we had coming out of COVID and how it was going to solve all of our problems and look at all of these different things we could do. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, there's evidence even from, you know, that telecare perspective where everyone ultimately was moving to remote consultations and this was going to be the future of healthcare. We now know that that's repealed and actually we are, I think it's just about the same level, if not just slightly above the same levels that we were pre-pandemic for the people, a number of people um, accessing remote consultations. So I think, you know, at a time where perhaps there's a lot of hype and excitement, it's really easy to get caught up in some of those overclaims because we all want to be really optimistic about the changes that we want to see. Um, And as I said, I think by and large, that's all very well-intentioned. I don't think that there is nefarious motivations behind that because there just isn't the commercial payback um, to try and leverage that, I don't think, over here in the UK. But I do acknowledge that it's very different, very different in the US, which I think ultimately is the conclusion here that... Yeah, well, I loved it. I love having a debate, by the way. I think it's been really good to hear... Uh, well, four slightly different and in some places quite different points of view. Um, and I, I, I actually just think it's really boring hearing everyone say the same thing and agreeing with each other. I'd much rather we all argue um, and then learn something at the end of it. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, pilotitis uh, is a risk for anyone in health tech, regardless of what market that you exist in. But, you know, wherever you are, Proceed with caution. Do not overclaim, um, and ultimately, I think you know, build trust with the people that you want to sell your product to, that you want to use your solution, and I think that is probably a good place to start. <laughs> 
final story of the day is brought to us by our friends over at Sifted, Mimi Billing and Kai Nicole Schwartz. I did say earlier that LLMs is one thing we just can't stop talking about, and I don't think we'll be stopping talking about it anytime soon. But they've brought us a headline that says, Outperforming Doctors and Dealing with Hallucinations, How Gen AI Will Transform Health Tech. Now, this article says that a less known fact is that LLMs are already being used widely in healthcare, Sifted has identified with a number of European startups using generative AI-powered tools that are being deployed in millions of real-life care situations, from doctor-patient interaction analyses to creation of new treatments. This is incredibly interesting. Grace, give us a rundown. Who are these startups that are leading this LLM charge and widely using LLMs in healthcare. Yeah, that was that was a bold claim, wasn't it? Um, I don't know how wide that use is or how you would define widely used. Um, and I love Sifted. I read this article um, with great interest, um, but with that caveat of hmm, how are we defining that these sort of generative AI LLMs are being used in millions of real life care situations, which is what the article claims. And as far as I know, without a great deal of regulation, which is always one of my central concerns when I come across these news points. Um, But what some of these models are doing is, I mean, it's interesting because there's a claim that you've got tools ranging from augmenting doctor and patient uh, interaction analysis and being used in drug creation um, and the recurring arguments around these models, what they're doing is they're actually freeing up time, but doing what humans can do faster. And you've got Danish startup Corti, which is probably the one that I was most intrigued by in this article, um, whose product claims to augment human conversation in healthcare and was trained on emergency room patient clinician interactions, as far as I'm aware, to support um, physicians reaching the correct diagnosis, guiding physicians towards that. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll run through the others as well because you've got Sarah doing a similar thing with audio, but based on what sounds like uh, healthcare professionals own recordings of a consult. So carers in, in caring situations, which seems marginally more palatable. And then you've got sort of the players within the drug discovery field. So Helix, I'm particularly interested in what Helix are doing because they're essentially training a model based on available information regarding a particular drug compound that they may be interested in. Um, and I felt that that was incredibly palatable because Helix I followed for a while now, their business model is centered around repurposing existing drug compounds. Um, so they're not exactly starting from scratch. And I feel that there could be a lot of promise in what they're doing there. But I just wanted to go back to Corti because this is where one of the subheadings of the article came from, which is, are, are these models effectively eavesdropping? Um, and again, would love to, to hear everyone's thoughts here because, I mean, again, having worked as a clinician in an emergency room, those conversations are not particularly private. Um, they're not particularly quiet either. And I'm, I'm sort of drawn to, is this a reliable way of training an AI model? You know, we know how busy ER departments are. I'm, I'm slightly uncomfortable with this for a wealth of reasons, but you've got the risk of misinterpretation leading to misdiagnoses if that's what the whole purpose of this chatbot is, is to be, which is to lead you to the correct diagnosis. You've got patient capacity issues. You've got you know, risk of discriminatory bias and so on. So uh, I'm, I'm, and I sort of dug a little bit deeper into what Corti are doing. And again, they've got this very, you know, slick website with what looks like a very slick, straightforward conversation taking place between a patient um, and healthcare professional. But I don't think I've ever seen anything that slick actually happen in my practice, certainly. Um, so I'd be keen to hear everyone else's thoughts on this. It's a topic that Junaid talked about at length a couple of weeks ago on uh, when he came on the podcast around this idea of listening in to patient consultations and regardless of the context, whether it's an emergency room, it's GP practice, specialist care, whatever. And actually, you know, there's a few things here. You're right, bias. How is it picking up different accents, for example? Um, Context. Uh, There's a lot that, as you say, is going on in an emergency room at any given time. There is nuance to conversations that you have with patients based on what you observe, based on your surroundings, based on what you may already know of them and what you've seen in their, um, perhaps their notes and their history. And one of the things that, that Liam Cahill also mentioned when we were talking about Babylon, actually, was that those consultations are also recorded, that you have 
when you access care through um, GP at hand. But there is no obvious disclaimer that that's the case. And I didn't know that till he said it. And so how comfortable are patients with having these conversations recorded? Now, I know that obviously there are notes that get recorded off the back of any consultation, but, you know, does that, A, how comfortable are patients, but B, that is surely going to also change what they're comfortable sharing and perhaps the language that they use. Um, So I, it's, yeah, it strikes me as slightly uncomfortable and I'm yet to work out whether it's uncomfortable because it's new or it's uncomfortable because it just doesn't feel right. It feels a bit big brother. Um, I can't quite get in line with this one, I don't think, yet. But I'm happy to be proven wrong. If I can chip in again, actually, this news point also reminds me of um, a study published in JAMA uh, a couple of weeks ago, which you might be familiar with, which on the flip side found a preference for patient responses generated from AI-based chatbots over the actual human physician response when it comes to sort of more nuanced tasks like answering patient questions and so on, and that they found them to be longer, sort of more detailed, higher in quality and so on. Um, and the authors of that study went on to recommend that these chatbots be used in clinical settings. So using chatbots to essentially draft responses that physicians could then edit, particularly when it comes to sort of, again, moving towards diagnoses. So I wonder if perhaps that's that's a more palatable, um, I keep using that word, but it, it sort of, again, seems to be the most appropriate one when it comes to how we utilise these types of models. But I'm, I'm with you. There is There is a certain distaste when I heard about this. And I think my my immediate uh, sort of concern was, you know, what is the patient capacity here? And as you say, you know, it might be that you're aware the conversation might be recorded, but what does that mean? And if you're in an emergency room situation, for instance, that's probably the last thing that you're concerned about. You know, if you're, if you're in pain, if you're especially unwell, you know, would you be in the ER for another reason? Um, so having that conversation recorded, if you're being told, oh, this is absolutely going to help and this is going to get you to a more accurate diagnosis, you're probably going to be on board with. Um, um, and I think that's that's where I, I sort of find it to be a bit of a grey area. Um, I don't know what Hugh and Jess also think. Only that I uh, really, I saw that uh, survey in JAMA as well and was shocked to see not just in quality, but in terms of the bedside manner that the uh, AI uh, responses were greeted with. It's just, how uh, yeah, presumably that's an assistive point in that you know if AI can reduce some capacity, uh, or reduce uh, capacity take up by your physician or by your doctor, then they're presumably going to give you a friendlier and, and more calming, um, calming point of view than they would if they were having to do it themselves. I think part of the difficulty with this, by the way, is that it doesn't actually make it clear what happens after the recording is taken. It just says it helps physicians to deliver the right diagnosis and treatment. And, you know, I'm sure had I gone off and done my research and looked into exactly how they're using those recordings and then what the output of that is, maybe I might feel more comfortable with it. Um, But I, I also think, you know, as we always say when we talk about AI and we talk about LLMs, there's a huge regulatory component here. And I would be interested to know if any of these companies have been through that regulatory process and for the ones that have, how they did it and and how they came out the other side. My sense is that potentially they haven't. And I think it really depends on the use of it and whether or not that's even been required in many cases. But, you know, we have a regulatory system that's not entirely set up for these. And I think going back to conversations we've had previously where, you know, there is absolutely a place for these kinds of solutions as a supplement to care to support decision-making and that kind of thing. You know, we absolutely shouldn't be talking in the terms of, you know, clinician versus AI versus LLMs. Um, To start with, it's inflammatory, but actually it, it sounds increasingly like, you know, the, the real potential actually is in, it, it, this is a tool that clinicians and serv- health services can use. And so actually the real comparison is between existing tools that are being used and new tools, both with used by a clinician. Um, so I think, you know, this article I think is intentionally quite um, out there, I would say. And I think it's a really important conversation to have. Um 
but I can't imagine that there are many doctors that would enjoy the headline of outperforming doctors and dealing with hallucinations. Um, and I think, you know, on the point of bias, there's, there's still so much that we don't know with LLMs and bias. And we know that there is a great deal of bias inherent in them because any AI is only as good as the data it's trained on. And often the data itself is biased. And also, you know, the data is not likely to be current. Um, it's used likely to be perhaps heritage data um, that maybe isn't reflective of perhaps current practice or current presentation, for example. So, you know, it's, it's important to remember that. But I would love to have a chance to chat in more detail with some of these founders to understand, you know, in more detail how they're putting these tools into practice um, and, you know, the impact it's starting to make now, how they got that into a real life care setting, um, you know, anyway, but that's, you know, can't be an easy task in itself. Um, and, and perhaps what they see the future of this looking like. Well, I think that is the perfect note to end on. Um, and I personally am going to go and find some of these founders to chat to because I really, really want to hear more, but I've really loved today's conversation debate in, in places as well. Uh, we always love a good debate, as I say. Uh, and Grace, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us before we finish a little bit more about what you're up to with the podcast, what you're doing at work and some of the exciting things that you're working on. Oh gosh. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so I, I host the Founders Keeps podcast, of which you are obviously one of my favorite guests, Jess. So yes, that's, that's still cracking on. I'm working on another podcast at the moment, which is entirely unrelated to healthcare. Um, I'm working on a women's health type project, which I'm hoping to, to bring out next week at work, um, is very, very important and special things that I absolutely can't talk about, but, you know, many exciting things in the works. So, so I'll let you know about that more when, when it gets developed. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else of interest that I can, that I can speak to you about, but that's, that's possibly it. My mind's gone a bit blank. It's, it's that Friday feeling at the end of a four day working week, as we've said, but thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. You're most welcome. And if any of our guests would like to get in touch, how can they reach you? Yeah, or just find me Find me on LinkedIn, Grace Hatton, um, email me. Um, I use my Founders Keepers email address, so hi at founderskeepers.com. Feel free to you know rate and review the podcast. Absolutely. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get those. That's just my tiny plug for now. Um, but LinkedIn's probably your best bet. I think you've done that before. All right. Thank you so much, Jess, Hugh and Grace. And we will speak to you all next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.